0: You can't build a
2: peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that explores issues in agricultural and medicinal biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach the goal of moving innovations to applications with communication now here's your special guest host
3: today's guest on the talking biotech podcast is dr. Doug Salmon's from Monsanto welcome to the podcast Doug thank you uh so let's start with your background can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you went to school
2: Well, uh, I work at Monsanto now, but I'm a a father of seven kids and seven grandkids. Uh, We live here in uh, the central United States, just west of St. Louis. Um, And uh, I went to school at uh, Ohio State University and got a a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and a Ph.D. in chemistry studying uh, enzyme mechanism chemistry. And then I uh, did a postdoctoral research uh, stint with the NIH-funded uh, fellowship at the uh, Penn State University and uh, State College before coming to Monsanto in 1984. So I've been here 33 years last Sunday.
4: Well, congratulations on that. Yeah,
2: okay, thank you. Uh,
4: so can you tell us maybe a little bit about what you do at Monsanto and maybe even how your role has evolved over the years?
2: Basically, what I do now is study glyphosate resistance uh, primarily, and I do a little bit of RNAi work. When I came to Monsanto, I was um, in a herbicide design group uh, discovery team and did that for about four or five years um, before I moved on to a natural product group that evolved into protein discovery for insecticidal proteins. I learned some insect biochemistry. And then I uh, moved back to herbicide physiology for four or five years, and um, then I studied seed physiology for a couple of years before going back to steward Roundup Ready crops around the year 2000, and uh, did some work on the new generation cotton and canola and soy that we have today. Uh, and about since 2002 or so, I've been working on glyphosate-resistant weeds. Good evolution all around biochemistry.
3: Pesticide resistance has become a bit of a concern for farmers with uh, weed management. So how do weeds and disease develop resistance? And what can a farmer do to help prevent that resistance
4: from evolving? Could you define resistance for us as well and what that means?
2: Right. So we use the definition on the weedscience.org website. Uh, There, what we try to do is say the weeds that no longer are managed or controlled by the uh, recommended dose uh, are resistant. Um, but in theory, when you're out there and you, you spray two times the herbicide because of overlap, it's really between the, the 1x dose and the 2x dose uh, for weeds to be resistant that survive and set seed. So the key part there is they set seed and have progeny, and that would be a resistant weed. Now, some people say, well, you know, you need to take the next generation and, and make seed and demonstrate it again that it's heritable. But usually when you collect seed from the field, that's that's what they are. They're demonstrating heritable resistance.
3: So how do weeds and diseases develop a resistance?
2: Well, they develop by, by you know, a process similar to natural selection. I mean, if you put selection pressure on them by using uh, a particular herbicide a lot in a system Um, Then you will select for resistance, but in order for resistance to appear occur, you have to have survivors. And so, for weeds, um, it's it's because you know we have this um, economic threshold for um, control. That is to say, it's easy to get eighty five percent of the weeds dead or controlled, but it might cost too much to do the next fifteen percent. So we'll let some survivors persist. And it's those survivors, I think, that are the nucleus for the resistance that we have today because we we don't really have a zero-tolerant policy or didn't have for very many, many years. This is pretty difficult to do with other pesticides because fungi and insects are moving around a lot. So it's always been a problem for them. But for weeds in a stationary system, it's mostly because we allowed survivors, I think.
4: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So what would a farmer be able to do to prevent resistance from evolving
2: then? Well, these days, you know, a lot of people initially said, well, they need to rotate. The problem with that is, well, there's a couple things wrong with it. Uh, Rotation is a word that has a very positive connotation in agriculture. Uh, And mostly because of disease, I think, in crops where people planting the same crop over and over again accumulate disease that carries over from year to year. Um, and so the idea of rotating crops was a good idea. And then the idea that the soil would be conditioned by different crops was also a good idea. But in weeds, uh, rotating herbicides, as it were, doesn't really help you because if the other herbicide doesn't work as well, then you let the selected population populate itself. And so when you come back to the other you know, herbicide selection, you have more individuals to take care of. And so what people have found is that admixing, multiple mode of actions, does a better job of keeping the resistance under uh, managed instead of blowing up. And so today our recommendations are generally uh, to use a diversified system that takes advantage of multiple ways to control the weed. So some pre-herbicides, post-herbicides, in-mixtures, And then to think about the weed control system as an all-year process instead of just a seasonal process, because some of the weeds, um, for instance, in the Mid-South, the amaranth, Palmer amaranth, um, will come on near harvest and and make enough seed to be a major problem next spring. And so it's not okay just to harvest and walk away. You have to worry about what goes on post-harvest and pre-planting. So um, sustainable management really then is all about making sure we take out um, more seed than we put back. And uh, when we look at different species, we can see that some species, this would be very difficult when they have very high seed drop numbers like the amaranth do, uh, hundreds of thousands of seeds, even in some cases per plant. Um, And this makes it very difficult. So the Somebody like Stanley Culpepper at University of Georgia would say, you know, a dozen or so plants per acre is all you're allowed for sustainable culture in a cotton field. Um, but for other plants that have many fewer seeds, morning glory or something like that, uh, there might be a different tolerance level for sustainability. So we haven't adjusted our concept of weed management down to the species level yet. I think that kind of creates a problem for us, and um, so there's some evolution going on right now in weed science and the way we think about that.
4: Do you think the development of resistance has driven that change in thinking?
2: Yes, I mean the res- the, the development of glyphosate-resistant Palmer in 2005 in the mid South and its spread has really found every weakness in our in our management system, and so. Some things we were doing we took for granted and or maybe were a little sloppy. And uh, this weed really just wrecked havoc where it was able to get a good uh, footprint. And and so that that required farmers to be really good about managing it. And so I think it has um, driven a lot of concepts about how to do that in a sensible uh, dollars and cents way and that's practical.
3: So, do you think you could very broadly explain the concept of RNAi and how it works?
2: Well, in plants, you know, it's so it's in in um, different organisms. Um, right? I think the the process of RNAi is known in plants and in animals for sure. Um, I'm not so sure about yeast and fungi and some others. I think some people have made claims, but if we just think about plants and animals, and in this case, insects. Um. There are different processes. So in plants, it can propagate. and In, in animals, it can't. You get, so, they're, so they're slightly different. They have different enzymes uh, through the whole cycle. But the process is basically to shut down the gene. So a gene is, is being transcribed and then translated to make a protein product. And the general idea is that that protein is not made, is knocked down. Less of it is made. And that uh, creates a toxicity in its own right and or enables a pesticide uh, to be more t- uh, potent at the same dose. And so the, um, it's a regulation of gene expression uh, in a couple different forms that it appears. It's thought to, in plants, I think it's thought, and maybe animals too, it's thought to have been evolved from a, a means to protect the cell against virus invasion and to block the um, expression of foreign genes. And it evolved into a system that um, the plant uses itself to regulate um, its development and morphological development, um, but also still uses to, to defend itself against virus.
4: How is this technology applied to pesticides. So what exactly is an RNAi pesticide?
2: Well, generally, these days, it's considered a double-stranded piece of RNA. For insects, they're usually a little bit longer, a um, couple hundred nucleotides long, double-stranded. And um, the insects are take it up. And they are able to get it into a cell, and especially in beetles, for instance, it's uh, easier to deliver RNA into an insect. And there, the um, RNA gets chopped up into um, lengths about 21 bases long, which then feed into the RNAi system. And the sequence, the antisense, um, so-called trigger strand, has to match uh, the messenger RNA of the gene. Target gene, and when that happens, then the target gene gets target message gets cleaved and degraded, and, um, and that there blocks the production of protein uh, for that target, and um, and so there's a lot of steps, and um, you know this is a sequence or molecules that are natural; they normally appear in the cell. It's just the antisense is uncommon. And so the dose we deliver starts the process towards uh, silencing.
3: So then how would this differ from a conventional pesticide in a very simple sense?
2: Right. So these are this is made of natural molecules that you have. So they're all completely natural. And you might then say it's organic, right? So it's sort of like a, a normal system. Conventional herbicides or pesticides are generally not natural products. They can mimic natural products. But they're usually man-made, and um, they may not have the specificity you would like, but, but but a lot of them do. And so they're they're foreign to the to the uh, target animal or plant, and um, so they're different, man-made, and so. But RNA isn't. It's common. Um, it's what we have in us already.
3: Okay, so then what would some pros and cons of RNAi technology
2: be? RNA is fragile. You know, it's a nucleic acid that's pretty easily degraded in the environment, so it wouldn't last very long. And it's, of course, in the process of formulating it as a pesticide to use. It's very sensitive to heat. A double strand would come apart, and then it becomes ultra-sensitive to degradation. So it's a, it's a compound that we would consider fragile.
3: So it wouldn't work in all climates. It would, it would, like Lauren and I are up in Canada, so it might do better up here than it would for you down in Missouri or further south.
2: Well, I think on a standard summer day, it, we can formulate it and use it. I think you can't leave it on the the tailgate of the truck um,
3: probably shouldn't leave a lot of things on the tailgate of your truck
2: <laughs> so you know you're it's not going to be something that you can allow to get hot to the touch when you're using it um not that we have to have refrigerators everywhere but it's, it's something that's going to be once it heats up it's going to be a problem
4: so it it wouldn't be stable year to year would it like if you bought this product two years later would it still have the same efficacy if it was or- in the
2: freezer i think so um But there's this is when you talk about pros and cons, and this would be one of the cons is that the the large scale manufacturing, production, storage, and handling hasn't is is a kind of a new universe of understanding that they're building right now. So uh, this is an area that people just haven't ventured into, and so there are a lot of small startup companies that are getting in this area and. And I think they're making significant progress. So, how, whatever we are at today is not where we're going to be in a year. But, um, there's, there's some major challenges here in learning how to make the RNA, how to stabilize it in a formulation, uh, so that it has a shelf life like a lot of conventional chemistries do. And, uh, that's going to be a challenge.
4: Other than agriculture, where else would RNA tap, technology have applications in society? Like, would that have medical applications for human medicine um, or in livestock?
2: Well, I think that in, uh, in medical applications, whether it's veterinarian or medical, I mean, there are a lot of people who have tried to do this. I think the major pharmaceutical companies have spent literally billions of dollars uh, because of the promise that it held um, there are a couple of major difficulties. One is the delivery of the molecules in an animal system is very difficult. And um, I, I think that progress has been made, but some discoveries needed to be made. And I think a lot of the early effort was thwarted because people couldn't figure out how to really deliver an efficacious dose. And then, of course, once you've got it into the animal, into the bloodstream, um, you have to get it delivered to the target without getting it degraded, and so the uh, pharmaceutical industry has resulted to um, a kind of kind of a conventional drug discovery concept, and that is make the molecules non-natural so they're not easily degraded, and that's been very very challenging and very expensive. So I wouldn't say they are defeated, but because uh, there's such a huge promise for the BLD to control some genes in medical, uh, diseases, but, um, but there is a lot of stuff to learn to make it so that it's routine. We're a long way from that. I think.
3: This, this might be outside of the scope of your knowledge about RNAi, but I wonder if for human medical applications, if they could make it work, if they had some sort of coding that was harder to degrade. Um, my cousin works with, uh, antibiotics and uh, bacterial resistant stuff and I know he's found that some bacteria have coatings that make them very hard to break down uh, but once you can you can get out what's inside very easily so I wonder if that would work
2: well sure that's a that's a sort of a standard approach for delivering pharmaceuticals and there's a huge amount of their effort is built on just the delivery of the active molecule in and so there are lots of concepts, and there, and there are RNAi working systems in medicine. There are some diseases for the eye and other typical uh, specific disease systems that are approachable because of where they are and access for delivery of the RNA. Um, so I don't mean to say that people haven't made good progress on some things. Uh, but as a, as a general overall uh, solving problems for every disease, it's got a long way to go.
3: So I think we'll take a short break right there. We're talking to Dr. Doug Salmon's, And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about his views on uh, working in food and agriculture. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Fulta. And this is Paul Vincelli, And we're here talking about the next generation of potential opportunities with the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we have a very special invitation for you. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. What we're looking for is to expand the opportunities of using this vehicle to expose more people to the opportunities within science communication. How do you build your brand by potentially hosting a Talking Biotech episode. Hosting a Talking Biotech episode accomplishes many things for me. One is I learn more about a topic that I'm interested in. And uh, two is I develop some skills on science communication and do it in a way that's really quite friendly and interactive. So how you do it is really simple. All you need to do is identify someone you would like to talk to, learn something about what they do, Make the interview time to talk to them and have the conversation. It's really simple. You do that, send us the audio files, and I'll take care of the rest. And uh, I'll offer myself to mentor somebody who wants to, uh, you know, stick their toe in the water and try it out. Yeah. And in the days of standing up for science, there's no better way for you to stand up for the science you enjoy and that you would like to communicate to others than to share those important stories. And use this platform to talk about what you're interested in. So think about it. It's a uh, wonderful opportunity and we're excited to extend it to you. And now back to the Talking biotech podcast.
4: And we're back on the Talking biotech podcast with Dr. Doug Salmons from Monsanto. Uh, today today we're talking about RNAi technology, its applications in agriculture. Uh, and Dr. Salmon's views on agriculture and the food system. So, part of my background as a grad student in weed science, I've had a few conversations with my advisor about RNAi technology, and just I've had a few questions. And from what I understand, um, you can use RNA technology to combat resistance, uh, but what it does is the RNAi pesticide, it... When you apply it, it will shut off the resistance gene in the plant. So then when you apply glyphosate, for example, um, after that, the glyphosate is then effective. Uh, so it's not actually the RNAi physically killing the plant. It would be the glyphosate after. It just brings the value back into our currently registered products.
2: Well, that, that, that's mostly right. I think um, the RNA serves to make the plant more sensitive. And so we've been able to augment several herbicides. So the RNA by itself doesn't uh, prevent resistance and it doesn't uh, reverse the resistance for the uh, survivors and the seeds. It's not changing the genetics of the plant, Um, but it does knock down uh, the protein of interest and or related proteins that make the plant more sensitive and thereby makes the herbicides more potent. And so uh, we get better control. And, um, and, you know, in the case we're doing, we're using them simultaneously. So part of the difficulty is just the overall uh, kinetics of the, each of the two uh, processes. You know, as the herbicide is working and its development of toxicity simultaneously while the uh, RNA is, is shutting down the production of the protein, so that those two things are manifested together to give us the weed control we want.
3: So, Doug, you've been working at Monsanto for 33 years, and uh, it's become a bit of a company that members of the public like to hate. So can you explain how the environment uh, changed when members of the public started learning who you guys were and started hating you?
2: Yeah, that's that's been an interesting progression. Certainly, when I started, um, Monsanto was um, a leader in the industry, mostly the fiber industry, and um, a lot of clothes, for instance, were wear dated. They had a guarantee that the fibers and the, the the clothes that you bought were guaranteed, and if something wore out, then you could get it replaced. And so, um, Monsanto was a very positive um, thing to the chemistry through better living sort of thinking um, in the 80s or before. And and then as we got into biotechnology, I think a lot of people didn't know what to think. And there were some few people who were um, outspoken against it at first. And at that time, I think, you know, I remember the advice was that if you argue with these people, then all you really do is raise it up and the attention level gets higher and higher so the best thing to do is just sort of um, be polite and and it'll go away. Well, well, in fact, it didn't. And I think that that was a big mistake for Monsanto, that intervening um, decade and a half or so that we let the um, the, uh, misunderstanding of the science and the contributions and benefits um, be overshadowed by sort of the fake science and and um, just illiterate science that was created. And so now, you know, the effort is to um, be positively engaged in, in science education and calling out fake science where it is and not allowing uh, people to um, just push an agenda that really is just all wrong and, uh, and has consequences beyond their reach. There, the third world, you know, there's there's a hundred million women in Africa whose lives would be completely different if they had uh, herbicide tolerant crops and insect resistant cra- crops, so um, they could take care of their families and improve their everyday lives instead of spending all of their free time um, uh, trying to make a food to put on the table for everyone. So. Um, I think that that was a very interesting evolution and it was um, I think it's unfortunate and sad.
4: If there was one thing that you wish the general public understood about food production and what you do for a living, what would that one thing be?
2: You know, I think I thought about this for a while um, and over the years and you know what is it that I, I get a kick out of the idea that um, just this my little job and my, the little stuff that I do, uh, improves the world's food security. And, uh, and I wish that the general populace understood or appreciated more how the science and technology that we use today keeps their food cheap and certain. You know, most of us, unless you're in the flood at Houston right now, uh, aren't really worried about where your next meal comes from or what you're going to eat. It's just not something that we worry about. But there are a lot of people in the world that are worried. And it's in part because we haven't been able to let our technology impact them as well. And so I wish I wish people appreciated the consequences of their decisions for their choices on, on the people who really rely on this to improve their lives.
3: I like that. I like that the small little things you do are making a small positive impact. I think I'm going to have to repeat that to myself when it's 35 degrees Celsius in the chicken barn and I'm sweating and have chicken poop in my hair. I think, I think I'll find that a little more comforting.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I sometimes, you know, working in the greenhouse, and the old greenhouses have louvers. When the louvers would start to move, they screech and make awful sounds, and it always... Struck me that it just sounds a lot like a lot of people wishing they had something.
3: Yeah. So, if people wanted to find out more about you and your work, is there a place where they could look for you online?
2: Well, I do um, participate a little bit. I don't use Facebook, but um, I'm in ResearchGate, and I um, do have a, a Twitter account. So, I think I'm uh, at wilted weeds, and. Um, and the views I express there are my own. And and so you can reach me there. And I'm in LinkedIn. You can look me up in LinkedIn. And that's probably the best way. And so I think if they come through LinkedIn or um, Twitter, then it's something easier for me to, to work, work
3: with. That's good. Yeah, I was looking at your research. Uh, I was impressed by how much stuff you had published there. There was a lot up there. There's something like 70 articles there.
2: Well, and I'm a, not a prolific writer, I'm a prolific collaborator, and uh, I've written a few papers, but I'm not, unfortunately, uh, a good writer, and so I rely on a lot of my collaborators to do the writing, and so they are um, um, to be thanked for all of that productivity in part, um, but yeah, we've covered a number of different areas, and so it's been a, it's been a good go.
3: So with that, I think we'll end the interview for today. Thank you again to Dr. Doug Sammons of the Monsanto Company for joining us to talk about RNAi technology.
2: Well, thanks very much, Sarah and Lauren. I appreciate you uh, letting me uh, talk with you guys.
1: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra.